Hey, welcome to You Talking with Greg. Uh, I'm here with Raven Conley, uh, a super fascinating, interesting philosopher queen at one time. That's when I first got exposed to you. Uh, yes. Onto the Stoa. I uh, saw a couple of really interesting, I know that you've been interesting reflection on game B lately. Uh, see you pop up in all sorts of different elements. And I've always been like, hey, I got to get her on uh, the show and uh, I want to talk about sex and death and whatever. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Greg. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be invited. So absolutely. So, you know, <clears throat> I am a clinician. And so what I do is I invite people, uh, you know, my natural tendency and kind of get to know people's narrative. Uh, and we're in this weird space together, you and I, in this weird meta-modern culture. Uh, people kind of know my story about how I wandered into here. Uh, maybe you can share a little bit, whatever level of depth or breadth you want to give, um, but just to help listeners kind of situate your place in the space. What's the story that kind of got you here uh, or key features that you might want to help situate? Yeah, um, well, key features. So before COVID world, um, I was already immersed in the podcast ecosystem okay. around, um, what did Peter call it? It was like Intellectual Explorers Club. Oh, yeah. You know, hey, I got invited that. to that. I was on um, that. <laughs> I listened to a few of those episodes. Honestly, the name kind of put me off, which Peter did discover. He was like, oh, that's such a dweeby name. Um, I was like too cool for that. I was listening to the Emerge podcast. Ah, of course. Daniel Horseman. Hey, um, I love that podcast, actually. Oh, my God. I, really, so I was so good. disappointed. That, and I, I was right to be set up to get on that podcast. So that was my life career goal. You know, after getting a full professor, I wanted to be on Emerge. And then you disconnected it. So anyway, I, I never got my dream. <laughs> major respect to that. I think people who really define their experience online um, and do what they want, I, I have a lot of respect for that. It's yeah. so easy to want to appease your fans. Um, yeah, I, that was, I will say, that's really funny because that's just actually hitting me. The Emerge oh. podcast was by mm -hmm. far one of the central pieces that walked me into this metamodern space. Totally. It was, well, I would, I, I'm going to listen to probably, you know, four out of every five of those episodes regularly. Oh, yeah. Regular walk. They were great. So anyway, uh, yeah, nice we totally. share that. Yeah, no, oh, we share beautiful. that. I think, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that that was a, a major shelling point for lots of people in this space. Um and kind of seeded a lot of the conceptual frameworks and like sense-making tools um, that made COVID much more legible um, once it started to happen and yep. kind of gave us a path for finding each other at the STOA um, and, and at other types of um, kind of digital um, campfires that emerged. But yeah, so I was listening to Emerge a lot. I was following like, you know, Daniel Schmachtenberger and the Game B folks. And um, the other thing about my history is I went to the Evergreen State College and studied under Brett Weinstein and Heather Hang for years. Um, oh, no shit. I didn't know that at all. Oh, my God. Yeah, what an yeah. interesting connection that is. Holy good Lord. Very bizarre, very bizarre situation. So and I grew up in Olympia. So like there was all this like weirdness. Um, and then you know, I had friends from class there who were in like the rationalist community and like the rationalist community is all, you know, like effective altruism and less wrong. And like, they're, you know, connected to uh, Qualia Research Institute and all of these other uh, kind of consciousness 
and, uh, you know, world-saving institutions. And so I was also connected to that community through personal relationships that I had. Mm. So the, And they fused, they've ended up fusing uh, in the last few years um, in, in a tremendous way. And then I was also introduced to uh, Justin Murphy and his kind of digital ecosystem indie thinkers. Um, so yeah, I've I heard actually, a little bit about that. I'm interested in learning more about that. So you, yeah, you have some yeah. connection with her? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was like involved in the first courses that he was doing online. And like uh, his first courses with were with uh, Johannes Schneiderhauser, who's like got his own kind of digital uh, university emerging. And so I was kind of early in all of that stuff. I've been pretty anti-institutional. You know, I went to Evergreen. You know, like, <laughs> just like say no more. I was anti-institutional. I was just born an anti-authoritarian. <laughs> you're you're um, not a conservative Republican, Raven. I, I gotta I re- update my biography of you. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> so very much, very much an anti-like uh, kind of in, very critical of institutions. Very strange kind of upbringing. Uh, both my parents were like the black sheep of their family, like totally mm. going rogue kind of uh, adopting a sort of hippie culture. Um, and that, I think kind of that primed me for uh, having a, having an ear to the ground when all of this stuff sure. really started emerging in the di- digital ecosystems. And I was obsessed with podcasts. I would listen to them huh. all the time. It was, it was like, it was a, it was like insane. It was a problem, huh. like super fixated, like right. just, extraordinarily fixated um couldn't think about anything else besides what i was learning and it kind of i mean it sounds kind of like what you've talked about yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. if you want to talk obsession you know yeah, i'll talk exactly. about my you talk obsession it is it's pretty runs pretty deep raven uh, but, just you know, like totally <laughs> totally out of it like couldn't talk about anything else just like oh immersed in in this like conceptual landscape um and aesthetic landscape um i had you know, a moment with this book called Hyper Objects by Timothy Morton. Sure. And that like, was like, like my exposure into philosophy, into Heidegger, and like into all mm. of this kind of um, working with the conceptual frameworks that inform our, our cultural patterns. Right. And trying to think of and conceive of new grammar essentially for interacting with things in the world. So hyperobjects was huge for me. And then I really feel like, I mean, that word is just used casually yep. in these groups. You know, yes, it's now it's, it's a part of the lexicon, you know. Well, oh, the, you know, like, oh, yeah. climate change like, is a hyperobject, of course. The internet is a hyperobject. Everyone knows that. You know, so, uh, and, and like complexity institute, whatever. I mean, we all know these things. Like it's not... I have that background um, in terms of my interests. So uh, I was really ready. I was really, really ready for something like the STOA when it emerged. Um, I was kind of starting- Actually, I'll just pause for a second. So changing the grammar of the culture, you talking with Greg is very much about changing the grammar of the culture. So I love that. I just need to hear that phrase and be like, yes, indeed. We fundamentally need to upgrade the grammar of our culture. So I just need to- Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think grammar is an an important way of understanding it because there's only a small subset of people who are really interested in these, in in the structures of things in an explicit way. You're kind you gotta be kind of a weird nerd person. 
<laughs> to be like, oh, how are these <laughs> what are you functioning? <laughs> like, how do we like figure out, you know, a sequence, uh, a hierarchical kind of integrated structure so that we can think through things. But, you know, we have those things implicitly in our culture already. And the, that is the grammatical structure. Like we don't think often about the grammatical structure of language. It just is a formalization in order for us to be legible to each other. I think the same thing can be said for how we understand, you know, the flows of, of um, you know, governance and other, other types of interaction. And so making it conscious and being like, okay, now we're really thinking about structure consciously and trying to investigate how to organize these systems of thought um, so that we can actually kind of make them implicit again. But once we've actually come to an explicit understanding of it, um, and I, I mean, I don't know what will happen to this community in the future, but I think that, you know, part of the reason why I think the Game B video is significant and regardless of its um, content is that it shows a, a kind of movement towards a implicit expression of yep. explicit grammars. Right. And while the video itself is very explicit about that, you know, it's called initiation into game B. Um, I think that there is a, uh, you know, potential for people to embrace the expression of, of this new grammatical structure in implicit form. And I think that that's where we can begin to get into a new artistic movement. I mean, like for, for me and for my friends, like there's a lot of different people who are involved in these communities with lots of different talents. And I think that, um, you know, metamodernism, for example, started as like a kind of artistic literature. Totally. Movement, right. Yeah, so totally. I think that there's um, a lot more to this community. Like this is a long-term project decade that people are going to be influenced by this and that the grammar that's that is explicit now that we're working on now in terms of mapping everything and trying to figure out how everything fits together will kind of sublimate um and become and I feel it in myself it's just like I've sucked it up like a sponge and it's now just like a value structure and a way of operating um in a much more fluid way that then allows for whatever I'm touching or experiencing to have that underlying structure without me consciously having to think about it. Um, it does take that like years of like right. working with material to, to shift your operating system to like become familiar with the grammar that you weren't immersed in throughout the other parts of your life. So there's a kind of, um, yeah, you make it explicit and it goes back down again and then you can play in a different kind of environment. But anyways, that's kind of- um, Beautiful. You know, that's another uh, part of the journey. Okay, so yeah, I love that. I love the reflections about the grammar. Uh, I mean, you talk is then buried in a particular academic uh, argument about this, uh, but the larger cultural awakening, the conscious evolution about that grammar and how to make it explicit and then um, turn it back into implicit. Um, I've kind of got two questions for you. One will follow that line. We'll come back to the other about the stoa, but were there things about that you saw in the grammar or things that you wanted to make explicit or things that really resonated at the very center uh, for you in relationship to this journey about the kinds of things we wanted to transform around or become aware around or central messages that were close to your heart in relationship to these issues? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so I was raised by a 
environmental activist. Um, so I have an interesting, I have an interesting history, I would say, with some of the more kind of activist class um, concerns, uh, both, you know, feminism and gender theory and environmentalism, where my mom was already involved in those things when in the 80s. <laughs> were people know? alive back then? Oh, wait. I know, Some of us right? were. <laughs> oh, my God. She always was reminding me, like, I was cool in the 80s. Oh, mm-hmm. my God. I had a nose piercing, but no one had a nose piercing. Right. I'm like, okay, mom, cool. I was a dork with a bowl cut, but let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> I once had a bowl cut, so I can so, emphasize with that. Um, so, uh, yeah, growing up in that environment, I like a lot of the things that I see now that are, I, I think, much more kind of almost maybe almost extreme because of the medium that we live in, kind of exaggerating a lot of the existing characteristics and, and propensities in the culture. Um, I was I was raised with these things. Like I was raised with an idea that there was going to be droughts and that there was going to be environmental catastrophe and that we needed to prepare and then we needed to save the world um and i was also raised with like gender neutral kind of ideology um and uh very strong like feminist ideology and that was also grammatical like it wasn't something where my mom was like handing me like andrea dworkin or something but it was just in the way that she operated in the world um and the way that she just kind of communicated with me and the way that she parented me and my brother um and so in a way when i got to college and the stuff was going on it was kind of like i had there was parts of me that had an affinity for it because it had been kind of primed right, in me, right. but it was also like not as cool, hmm. you know, because it was like I already kind of knew it and I already right. kind of was like you weren't like getting enlightened to it, to it in a particular yeah, way. Yeah, no, it was more like, oh, other people are finding this out. Like mm-hmm. maybe I should be friends with those people. And then I would try, then I would kind of get close and I'd be like, no, I'm gonna go back to my science class. <laughs> like <laughs> Um, and if I was in classes with Heather and like they were kind of playing this um, very gentle, I found, game of pushing back on students and their more radical ideologies and of course I went to Everett College, very radical people there, um, very openly radical people. Mm-hmm. Um, so were you like, actually there when the whole thing blew? I was, yeah. Oh, I was. Wow. Um, at that point I wasn't in courses with Brett and Heather was on sabbatical so I was a little bit more peripheral to the drama Mm. so I watched it a little bit from the outside with and I was you know I was living with people who are protesting like situation anyways that's like a whole whole long story right right right. um, yeah so so your question about the grammar so I think that Actually, when I read Hyper Objects, that was really something that hit me in a really deep way, um, partially due to the environmental aspect of it. There was something just so so beautiful about the um, reimagining of nature and the kind of poetic elements of that of that book um, in terms of embracing this idea of withdrawnness, the withdrawnness of objects, and this kind of like um inherent strangeness or, or uncanniness to being and 
this this being mixed with kind of environmentalism or like a re under like a reemergence or a reunderstanding of like how to engage with the hyper objects of Earth. Just like I mean, I read that book like seven times. Like it was just wow. like such a critical text for me. Um, in terms of like shifting my thinking and just being very like the grammar of my like in terms of thinking in, of objects of interacting with objects in the world and being like oh objects are like inherently imperceptible i am inherently imperceptible and anytime that i'm getting a contact with another object i am i am coming into a kind of phase space where i'm i'm touching an aspect of the object but i'm not touching its inherent like wholeness right but its wholeness is withdrawn even to the object itself um and because of that like the mix of the aesthetic and it already like was um you know it was it was so interesting how i got into philosophy it was very much environmental like i remember reading about people <laughs> who were like against invasive species as a concept okay. you know uh -huh. Uh -huh. like right, that right, kind right. of thing and then eventually i just um i found that there were things about environmentalism that were emotionally manipulative um i found and and i think that as I've done more work on my kind of like more trauma informed work on myself as a person, um, realizing that there, there is an unnecessary need to negate your own kind of psychological structure um, when trying to engage with things that are, that you think are happening in material reality, right? And because of the instability of that of that framework like oh the water's deep. like no water and like you're gonna die and like you know everything's gonna end like that type of thinking is like highly unstable and i think that for me i had to distance myself from it so my my mother actually passed away when i was 19 wow. and that was like a major shift in my life um that like completely reoriented like the gravitational kind of structure mm. of my existence because she was just the biggest center mm. everything revolved around her like our whole everyone in the family the whole mm -hmm. lives revolved around mm -hmm. her and then she wow. was like oh, this whole um and she also held this kind of metaphysics she's a very spiritual person and as I got older and I started to distance myself from that and realize how much of that mentality for her was also rooted in her, her trauma, her history. Mm. I was like, okay, like I need to go figure out what I believe and yeah. individuate kind of fully mm. from, from the fear, essentially the fear that was in my in, in childhood environment. And so I feel very sympathetic towards the generation of kids today who are growing up, who are extremely anxious, um, feel like the pressure of the entire world is on their shoulders. They think that, um, you know, climate change is just this like intractable problem that, that no one can do anything about. And it's just uh, an overwhelming state for a young person to be in. It's very, very highly demoralizing. And I think in, in that time, and I think also the stuff that I found listening to Emerge and getting more interested explicitly in psychology, was realizing like, okay, actually the psyche, you have to understand the structure of the psyche. <laughs> you have to understand how human beings work in order to try and, and 
understand the objective state of things in the world. If you don't understand, and this is the rationality thing, if you don't understand biases, if you don't understand like the kind of patterns of reality distortion that can emerge or the confusion that we can exist in and shared confusion, shared state of confusion. And then, you know, learning about propaganda, learning about the structure of institutions and realizing that, oh, wow, like the things that I believed or the things that I was kind of primed to understand in the grammar of my upbringing were also things that were propaganda, linked to propaganda campaigns and, um, you know, niche academic fields that became like <clears throat> utilized and weaponized in order to um, enter into kind of control societies. And, you know, all of this kind of stuff, the deconstruction and critique, um, I did take that from postmodernism, but I was using it and I, I continue to use it to critique postmodernism. Right. Um, so, That's a, what, I, a, what a glorious thing. You mean that psychology is crucial in relationship to this? You've come to the right program. Crazy. Yeah. What a crazy idea. And like understanding my own psyche was really important. Yeah. Like I said, just for negating like my own, my own belief system and, and being like, oh yeah. Okay. Well, there is some sort of objective thing going on. There is an objective kind of climate shift. There's an objective collapse scenario, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I have to be a depressed, anxious person. Right. Like the, these are, these are actually separate qualities of existence. And I mean, I think, you know, obviously there's some crew in our world that's into that, like the doomer optimism people, right? So people have realized this. And I think that led me more into kind of, you know, consciousness studies and thinking about um, the structure of, of the psyche and the, our emotional selves and uh, healing traumatic experiences and understanding the, um, the the necessity to create a extremely high functioning social group in order to even begin even begin to think about these these like long term intractable kind of like hyper objective um, collective problems uh, and so that kind of shifted my interest more into self-development and being involved in these communities where this stuff has become ex explicit and conscious and people are working on themselves because that's, a, I think, very much a necessary thing before you can be unhealthy relationship with yourself, the knowledge of what's going on in the world, and then actually act in a way that is contributing to some, some greater future rather than just continuing to cycle in in like stress and anxiety and traumatic experience so wow i don't even beautiful know okay so <laughs> <laughs> well mike it actually that just resonates with a whole bunch of different things so i'll offer some reflections um uh so you know from what i'm hearing is you're waking up to the grammar of a particular type of structure that you're built in uh you know uh, that's this in this modern postmodern you know, context, say environmental activism's, you know, a very crucial critique, but then it's also, wait a minute, that gets propagandized. Wait a minute, what is the intersection of my own subjective conscious experience of being in relationship to these processes? Where are we and what's actually necessary for the transformations that are healthy? Um, and then, you know, it's particularly endearing to me, quite, quite frankly, <clears throat> for, at the time that I am at uh, in relationship to some of the uh, more recent developments in Utah, hmm. which happens to be over the last 
year in general and over the last two months in particular, it is mastery of the concept of psyche inside mm -hmm. of you talk. Okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, you like if I, I'll be, I actually need to do this. I'll go back to my first book, A U New Unified Theory of Psychology. I am mm -hmm. not sure I would have used the word psyche ever in the book in mm. relation to that concept. Uh, and for a whole host of interesting reasons as to why and what that is. And it relates to the thing called conceptual thing called the problem of psychology, um, mm. which is the difficulty in grasping the subject matter of psychology in a way that is contextually um, framed by the language game of modern empirical natural science. Okay. Um, and there's this whole network of problems, academic, arcane, academic, conceptual problems that I'm actually epicenterally connected to. Um, and the, the answer that I then generate is a behavioral answer in essence, which is because it has to be from a natural science perspective is a third person um, uh, position in and also what's called a nomenthetic position, which is a general lawful behavioral process. If you're going to anchor to the language game in natural science, you essentially need to play with that grammar. Okay. Yeah. And that means the subjective quality, ideographic experience of being in the real here now contingent experience is actually blinded by the language game of science. Mm -hmm. okay? The actual language game of science essentially tries to collapse in so that that subjective quality perspective is actually epiphenomenal or no longer necessary yes. in relationship to the yeah. explanatory structure. And one of the great problems of psychology has been, if that is that the epicenter of our concern, the first person mm -hmm. experience of being, okay? And what is the relationship between that and the language of natural science? And that's never been solved. You talk yeah. solves it by framing this big picture behavioral view at the life level, then the animal mental level, and then the human person level generates a meta-theoretical structure for what's called human mental behavior, okay? Mm -hmm. That is then designed to give me as a psychological doctor a framework that's up to the task of my patient, okay? In other words, I now understand human mental behavior so I can hear you, see your human mental behavior. And now I've specified that the I can wrap the human mental behavior around from the outside, the psyche from the inside. Okay? And so what you talk then actually affords is a third person, first person, intersubjective, constructed, interpersonal, transjective epistemology that is coherent at the ontological level. So it bridges psyche and physics um, with coherence. Uh, and wow. that's that's helpful uh, and, uh, and tremendously it, so. it a particular kind of intelligibility then that we've been lacking uh, mm. so that you pick up so to me the excitement and listening to uh, your incredible capacity to kind of abstract across grammar look at a multiplicity of different elements find yourself in a particular thing see post-conventionally above it and then extract what it is that we actually need and then to land yourself on psyche in relationship to hyper objects is, is a beautiful thing for me to hear because I was like, yeah, intuitively, that's exactly the kind of grammar we need. And actually, Utah is actually situated to bring coherent intelligibility to precisely those concerns. Mm, very cool. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a gr grammatical whole, right? So you would imagine that many people are kind of finding themselves attempting to bridge the the gap or the hole um and maybe that's maybe that's part of what 
people are feeling. And I think, um, yeah, it's interesting. There's also this kind of quality of, um, you know, presence and absence, I feel in, in terms of like, uh, like engaging in the world. I mean, I think that, uh, Young has a good idea in terms of the unconscious, but I think that there's maybe a more broader thing where there's like presence and there's absence and absence is like a kind, it, it can, it actually has a kind of gravitational quality to it, um, maybe even more so than presence does. And, but you have to be attuned to the things that are missing. And that takes a certain quality of, of, of sensing, truly like sensing. It's not just an intellectual thing, but it's more of a, there's a dispositional quality to it. There's like an openness, um, honestly, to like kind of rewriting your entire framework of, of interfacing with the world, which like, luckily for me, I think I've just been highly malleable and I've changed the way that I think like so many times. It's like insane. <laughs> you're, oh you're, I, I'll put a positive spin on malleable. You're highly evolvable. without being hierarchical we'll just say you're highly evolvable <laughs> in relation okay it doesn't have to be hierarchical i guess all right well we want to be careful about hierarchy because that yeah, creates a positivity the that then misses a negativity we have to actually hold the dialectic yeah. uh, you know and indeed i appreciate like cadell last and bard's work on negative you know the negative, the negative yeah. ne negatology. Did I actually say that? Yeah, right? I, yeah, I, I think, think so. so. Which uh, is I haven't funny. said it out loud yet because I read it on intellectual deep web. I was like, wait, is, what, how do I say that now? <laughs> negatology. You know, there's exactly. negging, so it's interesting mm -hmm. that yeah. it's, so, uh, in, in the term neg negatology. Um, well, yeah, and then I think also this kind of got sucked into my, my thinking because you know Brett, you know, as a conceptual, like as a as a um, evolutionary theorist right like he would do these presentations about like adaptive landscapes and yeah. like how organisms depending on what kind of path they're taking in terms of their evolutionary trajectory end up with these like kind of stuck in these local maximums in terms of their evolvability and so when you see these climate shifts or you see these kind of uh, like yeah the planet goes through these changes um there's some creatures that are they have a path of adaptability that is not accessible to other creatures because they've kind of they've, they've picked their path and they don't have any yep. they don't have anywhere to go essentially right. <laughs> you get basically you get a, a niche island that doesn't have the capacity to drop underneath it and find another island and basically get starved out yeah and human beings of course are, are unique because of our capacity to kind of yeah fill up an adaptive landscape completely but then also realize, oh shit, like this is no longer working. Can I walk back down the mountain, get into the valley again and search for another peak to climb? And I think that metaphorical structure also gave me a kind of, I mean, you know, metaphor, I think, or analogy, right? It kind of primes the mind to think in terms of space, right? And space is what gives you a sense of grammar. How are things arranged in space? Which is another, like, I also read Metaphors We Live By and, like, kind of, of was learning, learning about all of that stuff. So, um, yeah, that's, that's been, um, that's been my, like, intellectual Beautiful. That's, yeah. a, 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 that's very rich. And then you find yourself at the stoa and you find yourself, you know, uh, you know, offering certain kinds of 
frames of reference and a particular identity. I, I also want to like begin to wander into some of our potential topics, although I'm having a hell of a time. So whatever. <laughs> I do have um, a link there because you know, I think they, the other the other piece here is like at this time in my life. I was still pretty like masculinely oriented, like hmm. in terms of like even even the patterns of my thinking, hyper fixated, like couldn't talk to people really about things besides what I was interested in, like just very obsessive. Is that um, a problem? <laughs> I, mean, I don't know that it's that's, a that's the other people after. <laughs> but there's a kind of um, it's it's something that I think is is not particularly feminine it's not a feminine kind of characteristic uh because it was like i was coming into environments and i was asserting myself i was like if you're going to talk to me i can only talk about these things and if you want to talk about anything else i will get bored and i will leave you know that was like my problem no, that's a, that is parties. a very uh <laughs> it, it, we could talk a little bit about archetypal masculine and, and feminine relational field dynamics and you are describing an archetypal masculine relational field dynamic, for sure. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, this, um, I, you know, I found lots of people who were cool with that to some extent, but I found, particularly in my female relationships, there was a lot less patience for that. Um, and, <sighs> yeah, yeah. Um, and the... Yeah, it was, it was just, it was an interesting hour to have, I think also fused with like a young female body was kind of put me in this unique position um, of this kind of like masculine and, and, and like physically female um, presence that gave me a kind of, yeah, unique power, honestly, a unique oh. power in social spaces um, but I think eventually I started to realize that this was limiting to me in a way that I hadn't realized before. Um, and I started to be interested in, in embodiment and like femininity more explicitly. And that was like the path I was kind of on. Before COVID hit, I was starting to realize that I was not in touch with my kind of caring nature, or I wasn't really engaged in practices of receptivity. I was a very dominant kind of person. Um, you know, it was just this Fascinating. very yeah. masculine kind yeah. of way of being in the world. And so I was trying to make the turn, but really it was like steering a massive ship. Okay, I have to like, like start really orienting, but I still have a long way to go, and I still feel like I'm on that okay. path now. Um, but then this is also coming in, in, in uh, at the same time. I mean, that's kind of how these things go, right? There's like right. structural shifts, and then there's these insights that are symptomatic of the structural reorientation. Um, yeah, more, becoming more conscious of like my, yeah like kind of traumatic patterns, like the fact that I was um, not behaving in a way that was serving my long-term health and goals. It was kind of spinning around and like couldn't sustain higher levels of responsibility and structure. 
And I was very much raised, I mean, I explained, to take on a great deal of responsibility um, and to be achieving very highly. Um, and there was a lot of expectations in my, in my household from my mother in particular, not only to achieve like academically and professionally, but also spiritually, like spiritually in terms of like, you know, sacrificing my life to some sort of mission or cause that would serve the world. Um, and the, the pressure of this, uh, I hadn't really, I had mostly just like, after she died, I had just kind of pushed it away and denied it. And then it started to kind of come up. And after a couple psychedelic experiences, I came in deep contact with this. And I was like, oh my God, I have so much shame about the fact that I'm like, not, you know, doing things for the world and like this whole thing. And that, that started to actually work on some sort of deeper level um, that made me more in contact with my femininity, in fact, um, strangely enough. And the, the thing that I'm working through now um, is really tapping into my capacity for care, which I had never, I had never even consciously thought about. I had not, I had not thought about um, being a, a, a caring person, being somebody who people want care from, um, people who feel safe with me, like all of these qualities that I were in my relationships, but I was not consciously aware of. And that was, I think, mostly due to this kind of masculine orientation in the world where I was like, well, I have these interests and I'm solving these conceptual problems. And like, yes, I'm in relationship with you, but like the things that you want from me are not in alignment with the things that I'm studying and I'm interested in. And like, there was these conflicts that were arising kind of the same ones over and over and over again around this negativity this negative space of like the care that i was giving but unconsciously giving right and not able to interact within a conscious way in my relationships and at some point this like you know after you know psychedelics and all sorts of like self-work and you know i think aj bond actually at the stoa with with shame brought shame into a conceptual Mm. space for me that i was like oh holy shit like there's this huge hole. Right. Oh my God. Like, where did that come from? Right. Um, so I think that now, and after and even like listening to your conversation with Annie Norlin mm-hmm. about the feminine and the connection to the void and actually taking on conceptual, uh, intellectual interest in what it means to be a woman. And the way that I think about this is that um, there are kind of, sensing potentials in bodies right there's like paths that you can go down like propensities that you might have in your sensory experience okay. that if you tap into those things you might you might find a, a peak that's extremely high mm. right mm. um and i i have a pretty high peak in terms of my masculine orientations mm-hmm. and so i think that that's where i naturally was inclined to go um but i hit some kind of ceiling mm. And I needed to get kind of knocked a few Mm -hmm. times in order to kind of come down. Mm -hmm. Um, And for whatever reason, in terms of the timing, I was in, I was in a valley at a time where I was becoming conscious of this new peak, which was this feminine capacity for sensing and receptivity that I hadn't been conscious of, but I had been doing. 
I had right. been totally receptive of other people. Mm-hmm. I totally could I could totally appeal to them personally, hyper personally, like mm. get into places with people that they they didn't get into places with with other people, like mm-hmm. just this kind of unique capacity to receive others, but mm. completely unconscious. I, I did not know what I was doing. Um and now I'm like, oh, this is actually like a feminine capacity. And it can be trained, it can be developed, and it's also crucial. It's highly crucial for doing healing work and for even receiving larger things like um, receiving the the world and receiving like um, almost kind of navigational messages, right? Like that's when you start to get into like, what is the unconscious and like how can you connect to it and are women closer to it than men kind of on a structural level because of the differences in our brains and like and our bodies and and I'm like okay wow like maybe I should polarize myself right like I thought of myself more of as an androgen and a go-between um between these two polarities but I'm realizing now oh, I could really develop this other feminine polarity much more consciously. And that actually, I think that peak is very, very high for me. Um, so that's been like the, the kind of path that I've been going on now. Um, Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. No, that's a, I mean, just so for myself, I have my feminine therapist heart, right? Yes. And then mm-hmm. I have my physicist head, you know, mm-hmm. and there mm-hmm. is absolutely... A, a well i'm yeah so i'm not i am and and i'm more archetypally masculine but i'm i have a deep feminine heart uh, in a particular way and it is certainly structured to cultivate a healthy and strong opponent process that is complementary in relationship to uh, analytical instrumental tough-minded problem solving that needs to be focused and oh my god what are you telling me and let's talk so and and, yeah, and yeah. I, I, anyway so you, your narrative there just you know that that falls into my psyche and really and, and resonates deeply and and I, I can feel that in you and it's so cool to then see your potential then being realized as sort of oh i'm neither it's like no i'm actually both and in a potentially rich and powerful way yeah, totally. And I think also my like masculine propensities, capacity to focus, all of that will be served so well by connecting to this feminine receptivity and heart heart connection to the world. And I mean, and it's amazing. I don't know, how much are you like into and or adopt like kind of Keegan models of adult I'm development? Fun. I can certainly track the Keegan model you can, of you the self tango in with that. I, yeah. I, I'm generally decent on these kinds of things. Oh, I know. But I mean, I don't know how like much you like, you know, uh, adopt that structure. Uh, like, yeah. But I do think that I, I whether or not you adopt his model wholeheartedly, um, the idea of subject object shifts as you kind of go through adult development, I think is crucial um, sure. as a metaphor for understanding the orientation that happens with the psyche. Um, and in terms of like identity formation and where you center yourself. And I think I've just gone through this subject object shift um, in t- and, and mostly it's been catalyzed by this connection to the heart and to mm-hmm. the feminine and my ability to sense 
social phenomenon, the unspoken, like the unconscious, like the things that are like not being said or not being like explicitly communicated, but are being, that are in the space skyrocketed. It was like, it was insane how much more attuned I could be to social environments and like how much, honestly, how much more overwhelming they became. Mm. Um, in some sense, like right. we'll go to the grocery store, you're like, oh my god, like, there's so much <laughs> there's going no, on right. here. <laughs> the shadow <laughs> backdrop of negative energy and the relationship of this space is very uh, strong. You know, <laughs> like, oh, I really want to go to the like bougie, sp- sparse grocery store now because I can just like feel like the intensity of of going to like, admire. You know, it's just like the chaos and like you know whatever the hostile architecture, like all of these things. Um, I think. Yeah, and I mean, I have my whole, have, you know, ideas about this in terms of um, if you cultivate feminine receptivity and sensitivity to the world, you need to have, uh, you either need to just sequester yourself from harsh, like, masculine environments or hostile environments because they actually, um, they damage your receptivity and your softness, or you have to be able to put on armor. You have to have like spiritual boundaries that you're able to walk into when you like, when you leave your, your house or you leave your um, sequestered place in order to deal with the, honestly, the extreme hostility of, of living in a, in a society. I mean, especially like American culture is like, there's so much antagonism (laughs) just like everywhere that is this whole other world of antagonism and um emotional tensions and repression that gets exposed and i think um that also i've become more attuned to that like like the implicit kind of emotional communication and the emotional energy that's being transferred in symbols if you're online and you're reading something from someone you can feel like, oh, wow, this person's pissed, right? And you can, you like receive that feeling and you you have it inside of yourself. So it's made me a lot more aware of people and psychoanalysis. And I think probably there's lots of different frameworks pointing at this. The fact that we have transference, the fact that we like pick up on the emotional context of other people without even consciously being aware of it. Um, and you can be aware of it. And, and this is the thing that's fascinating to me. And, and the change in my psyche has made me feel like so much more humbled in terms of, I mean, I'm, I'm 26. I'm going to be 27 in April. I'm like, oh my God, if my psyche could change so much at such a young age, like I can't even imagine what's going to happen when I'm like 40 or 50 <laughs> or 80, you know, just like. Make it stuff. I don't know. Holy <laughs> crap. Like it, it's, it's like. This and the, yeah, I mean, I'm just so baffled. I'm baffled by the potential of um, consciousness shift with a restructuring of your subjective nature um, and how it actually attunes you to different forms of implicit kind of communication or energy or whatever you want to say in the field you know, in the social fields. Um, and I think cultural sophistication, in fact, this is one of my theories, I guess, cultural sophistication is actually the kind of development of, of these traits in a, in a community. And 
the capacity to form etiquette that everyone shares that allows them to play with the implicit dynamics that are occurring in, in their social environment. Um, yeah, and I think we've kind of lost that grammar. Like that's a grammar of interaction and a grammar of understanding about what is, in, what is invisible or what is not explicitly pointed to. And I think Western frameworks of understanding things have kind of obfuscated um, these, these, these dynamics and pushed them into the shadow. And we've actually lost cultural grammar for engaging with these things. And with, with, you know, with the emergence of the digital communication medium, now all of that shadowy repressed kind of uh, qualities are being brought into the forefront, into our social environments. And we, we literally don't have the words to describe what's going on. We don't have the models to describe what's going on. And so many people are being flung into it all at the same time um, that I feel like there's, there's, you can feel the gap, like it's palpable, the absence of grammar um, and the fact that we're actually kind of losing the grammar that we did have even more, we're kind of like rushing to zero. Um, Patrick Ryan talked about this in an in a episode that we were, we were doing on arrows. Um, so anyways, I'm just trembling. But I can feel your feminine receptivity. <laughs> I, I'm loving this. I am, my receptivity is very high at this juncture. You're filling me up with all sorts of insights. Right, yeah. No, it's it's great. No, it feels really good. Um, yeah, it's not it's not often that I get the chance to just like like say everything um, all at once. So I appreciate that context and frame. That's another form of magic, right? um, setting the context, setting the frame, so that you can expose all right. these things. Well, but I'll throw the ball back to you. Where do you want to take it? Um, well. You know, I'm listening and absorbing simply because you're filling in a number of abstract gaps, at least in relationship to the systems that I am seeing and the hyper objects that we live. And you're picking up massive themes and you're filling them in uh, with some degree of, uh, you know, specifics as well as an intuitive felt sense of being that seems exactly right for the moments that we're in. So, you know, sign me up. <laughs> Is how can I make a vocation of this? This is my, this is my question. You know, there you go. Well, that's a that is a good um, question. But well, but I but I do believe. I mean, at the level of you know, I mean, what we're trying to do is we are searching for awareness about what the inadequacies of the current grammar are. Okay. Yeah. And then we are trying to emerge a particular grammar that does capture us as we implode to zero, and and finds its way. You know, acknowledging whatever momentum and inertia is going to carry us in a particular painful spot. But we want to actually also be operating in a way that's going to minimize the depth of that basement drop and do what we can to play a role in a networking structure that affords yeah. the rebirth of a new kind of grammar that's up to the task of this digital yeah. age. And ultimately, Utah's fundamental concern is what is happening in the back half of the 21st century. I mean, that's like a, that rebooting a sustainable grammar that yeah. affords in Zach Steinstern's an educational intergenerational transmission of legitimate knowledge oriented towards wisdom as we relate to each other in the digital through our you know technological structures inside of nature with each other and our own chaotic fucking psyches. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Zach Stein work is is really um, influential for me right now in terms of 
education and education reform, or I mean, education imagination, imagining um, right. as the source of new cultural operating systems. That seems right. I mean, you know, that uh, John Verbeke used grammar. You're using grammar. The whole it's not yeah. schooling. It's the fundamental backdrop of grounding architecture that we can actually come to agree on at some level that's going to transcend this unbelievably crazy spot so we know what's going to be incredibly new and be open to it but share our values together around the grounding of what's nece necessitates our sustainability you know yeah uh, and that's a that's a foundational um, issue uh, and little utah's got a particular angle on that because it basically says i actually can analytically diagnose the errors uh, uh, the specific errors that emerge in the Enlightenment modernity set of understandings that break open our philosophy for coherent intelligibility and pummel us brutally into a chaotic fragmented pluralism that mm, then is mm -hmm. in, unable to then upgrade our grammar as we then swim in an ocean of information, only layering itself upon itself in the digital world and then creating this vacuum in which people get sucked into. But we have to then, from a so sort of meta-psychological physician perspective, diagnose the error, okay, fix the error conceptually. That's what you talk affords. And then I have to figure out, well, find people to connect that are also seeing it and then create a participatory relation. So you actually, because it's really fucking complicated, <laughs> but then make it as simple as possible and then afford that metabolization down the road so that that new grammar that's up to the task gets upgraded and emerges in the system as so it catches the implosion and then reverberates and then affords a transition into a uh, hopefully a better state of being sure yeah yeah definitely that's well thank you for your contributions uh, <laughs> <laughs> i feel like um yeah it's interesting it's interesting the idea of like getting people to understand it versus providing a clarified framework for people who already get it right like that's kind of you know yep. I, and i think that's a thing about emergence right it's like it's all about the adjacent possible right mm -hmm. and 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 like kind of letting things spread through these networks of influence and um if you can and i think you have find people who you know intuitively resonate with the structure like i mean i think for me sitting here i'm like Oh, this is like clarifying things, right? In a way that I'm like, oh, I could use this as a model. Um, and I can imagine as well um, doing therapeutic practice of any kind, if it, you know, whether or not you're doing something like more mind body, like you're doing uh, like naturopathy or treating illness. Um, I mean, you can still use this kind of structure, right? Because we're talking about. Um, these different levels of emergence, like when you're sitting with a physician and you're trying to tell them what's wrong with you, you know, you're using a justification layer um, in order to communicate, but like something that's going on physically in your body. And like, we all, we know that there are these loops between what's happening in the psyche and what's happening in the body and like, and the necessity to understand, you know, what is like the animal structure, you know, of, of our modalities, what's uniquely human and how they interface with each other. Um, you know, I think Benita Roy, I mean, I don't know if you've, you've looked at her. She's got kind of... Oh, yeah. No, I'm, and, I'm, I visit yeah. her stuff. She's coming on you talk in March. Woohoo! Well, of course, to me that. and Bonnie. I, I, yes, I me and Bonnie her. have synced up around the nature of self and psyche and uh, yeah. you know, slightly a different... But now we're actually hanging out for a little while and 
Cool. You know, my Utah thing comes across as this sort of meta-systemic thing that Bonnie's like, hmm. But I was like, yeah, actually, no, I'll flip it around and do the therapeutic care thing. And then we can actually get along. It's good. And then we have, and she, you know, yeah. I think she's brilliant. And we're, we're yeah, we're syn synergistically uh, dancing these days. So that's good. That's awesome. I love that. I mean, one of the things that she did in her Stoa session where she was kind of laying out her model of the self, uh, she talked about the animal, right? And how like we've basically created a grammar um, around our animal nature that makes the kind of, you know, like whatever base things about being an animal, like shitting and fucking and dying and, and, and being aggressive and like all of this stuff bad and all of the good stuff about being an animal, like loyalty and love and nurture and care, all these things that for mammals, like you, you see them and you see them, you see oh. this in other animals. It's not a uniquely human thing to be loyal. Um, no. or love <laughs> or love yeah no like these are these are um qualities of other mammals and 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 i would even argue like some other uh, i mean like what's going on with birds like it seems like they have this kind of, of like long-term yeah, no. parental care right um and that was just like boom to me like i was like oh thank you for just pointing that out because like that is so true right like the animal nature has both these qualities that we we venerate and we see as being like the core of just justice yep. and character, mm -hmm. um, loyalty, integrity, and all of these um, character qualities in a person. <laughs> but then we also we we toss away we we say that human is, but all of this aggression and all of this fear and all of this um, you know all of this bodily stuff, right? That's all just like bad devil stuff. And we're just gonna like push that out and and exile it. And I feel like that is you know, kind of talking about the dark renaissance critique of game B, for example. Um that's bringing that back in into the, like our whole concept of what it means to be human as human animal and integrating those aspects, I think is a super critical part of, of uh, reworking the grammar of our existence and becoming comfortable with our animal nature and the body as, as such. And like, I'm experiencing that now with um, spending time with my grandmother who's dying. Mm. I'm like, her body is being, it, it, it's, it's deteriorating in front of me. I can see it like it's being reduced function, right? Which is very, you know, very much the Western medicine way of dealing with the body. But um, regardless of, of kind of the Western grammar of it, if you're in touch with the inter intergenerational, um, if you're in touch with the bodies of, of babies and the bodies of elders, totally. you can see that there is this life cycle that we move through and that our, our, the, the criticality of our physical bodies and how that is connected to health and like wellness and like wholeness whatever whatever words you want to use those are all um, good ones <laughs> the and and then how that relates to the psyche because the other thing that i've been observing you know as my grandmother's aged is how her psyche has just like rigidified you know and and playing these long games in terms of your life and how you're how you're adapting to change and whether or not you're able to give up your structure of your identity and go into this like you know chrysalis stage yep. where you, you denature all of your structure and you go through like an annealing process and allow mm. for a re-emergence of a new 
structure of, of, of like neurological interaction with the world, all of these things are necessary skill sets for adapting to the liminal stage exactly. that we're in. Um, and if we can preserve this, these, these journeys uh -huh. um, in an educational process, then it's something that we could actually use as the ground of an emerging community and an emerging um, culture. Totally. And that's the kind of thing that could create uh, the possibility of a highly sophisticated um, culture of people who are operating in their animal bodies and they know that they're using the powers of their animal bodies, the sensing of their animal body, um, and also bringing that into integrity with their justification structures. You know, um, you so talking now, girl. That's right. I'm picking it up. <laughs> right. So I'll give actually, so we can la layer that up just a little bit here. So yes, yeah, you're an organism. It. Okay. So you're an organism, genes, cells, organ systems, your human biological, physiological structure. It's a complex yeah. adaptive system that then creates a field. Okay. Then you create a neurobiomental field. Okay. Uh, that, that first is a neurocognitive structure that's basically kind of robotic, but out of that pretty quickly it ties together into the base of your psyche. Okay, so the psyche then refers to the epistemic organizing, meaning-making, experiencing system that is at the fundamental core of the thing I can't see, but the thing you see through. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's the epistemological gap that I can't see, and your epistemological portal into the perspectival world. That's the epicenter of your psyche. Okay, now we can drop down, if you follow the psyche in terms of its basic constituents, what you'll feel is you'll you'll find it, okay, there's sort of like a screen of awareness, all right? And then that screen of awareness will dissipate ultimately if you tend to it in a witness function that then dissipates into the body, okay? And then you get pleasure, pain, active, passive, what John and I, John Verbeke and I call valence qualia, mm -hmm. okay? So the valence qualia is the fundamental base of intersecting with the core of the animal mental into the organism living. All right. And basically, it's the collection of the body that's sending collective signals like in a stadium clapping or booing. OK, that then gets organized into pleasure and pain, active, passive. All right. So that's the base of your animal body. Then we jump up to your mammal. The mammal capacity extends that into a perceptual field and gives you an internal working memory system. That is your inner mind's eye that has adjectival and adverbial consciousness functions that allows you to extend across time and hold that picture screen and do a little bit of manipulation, okay? So that's your inner mind's eye and that's bouncing around all the time. You're like, oh, look at that, look at that, look at that. That's your mammal, okay? Then you're a primate, okay? And in particular, a hominid primate that's unbelievably relational, all right? What the relational primate does that we have, that other primates sort of have, but we pull together our attachment systems, our competitive systems, our cooperative systems, yoke them together into a self-other field that creates an intersubjective sense so that I can track you attention-wise and intention-wise better than the other great apes before I have language, okay? And you nod and I point and we're dancing together, okay? And we can music together, right? We can, we can image together. We have a shared sense what Tom, Michael Tomasello calls we space. This is your primate heart, okay? It's the felt sense of attachment, the felt sense of joining, the felt sense of feeling secure on the one hand, or fucking rejected and not belonging and brutalized on the other, okay? So you got your animal body, your mind's eye mammal, now you're in your primate heart. And those are the stacked animal systems of the psyche, 
that we fucking wander around and need both the hostile, angry, shitting, fucking, and at the same time, the loving, cooperative care, which is all just part of the nature and actually a human structure, especially on this, because of the flexibility of this influence matrix capacity, our capacity for good and evil in the relational world is unbelievable on both ends of that, okay? And so we better be aware of that polarity and the tendencies and the opportunities that we have to be, both be one of the greatest animals giving wise, one of the most fucking evil animals because of its flexibility. And then what happens is we then, you know, sync up, we start tagging symbolically, and then we get these propositions, okay? Semantics and tactical propositions. And it is the negative space of propositions that actually launches the whole fucking problem according to unified theory. So Mm. you start saying there are the antelope, okay? Where before we said antelope there, which we would intuitively be able to, you know, sync up, we'd watch behavior, blah, blah, blah. We'd be doing animal communication. Well, now you get symbolic syntactical communication. You actually have an analytic truth statement. There are the antelope, okay? And what that actually does cognitively is opens up the negative space of possibility around there are the antelope, which maybe Mm. they're not, okay? Those Mm. aren't antelope. And it occupies a positive space that says, well, there are rabbits, maybe we should go hunt those. And there are berries, maybe we should go do that, okay? Because it yokes us together around a truth claim and then opens up possible negative space about factual and then investment dynamics. I'm good at hunting antelope, so I want to talk there. You're good at hunting rabbits, you want to go over there. How do we then navigate what we're actually going to do in the possible space relative to the positive space that the proposition activates, okay? Well, that's then creates questions, what, when, why, where. Notice how simple those fucking questions are. Okay, which then open up negative possible space. And now you get question answer dynamics. Okay, which is around the problem of justification, which is legitimizing is and ought and coordinating ourselves and building shared propositional networks of belief systems that give us the same propositional reality that can then coordinate mm-hmm. our implicit um, intersubjective reality. And that yeah. then becomes the culture person plane of existence where now we're justifying explicitly. Okay our primate cells that we're trying to coordinate implicitly. All right. So then you actually, on top of that animal psyche, you then get a human head, which has a justificatory narrator. And because of the cognitive flexibility associated with justification, we can actually project ourselves in a time variable that's radically different than other animals too. So we got a perspectival projection across time and a justificatory, and that's your head up here where you're like, oh, I'm going to fucking go to graduate school for four fucking years, right? You know, whatever. And it's like, who the hell, the animals really, other animals, okay? So now we sit in headspace, and then ultimately that arc of time, like then that becomes transcendent spiritual kinds of stuff. So we need to help people realize that their psyche stack sits inside that body, and that body creates the entire container for it, and it regulates it in passive active pleasure pain that creates a particular mammal field, creates a particular primate relational field, and then creates person heads cross time image wise and justificatory space wise. And then mm-hmm. ultimately, if we can align our transcendent spiritual arc across time with our embodiment, then we will actually be able to have a wisdom stack that's up to the task of constructing a grammar that's sustainable. Yeah, yeah. And I think what you're speaking of in terms of navigation is, is critical, right? Because Especially as I get older and I'm trying to surf these longer time scales. Right. Easy there. <laughs> I know. I know. Remember who you're talking to. 
<laughs> but it's yeah, okay. I'm coping. And I'm no. still changing, as you know, as I told you right before. Of course. Like, this is still happening. Of course. <laughs> but, you know, especially nowadays, oh my gosh, like, uh, there's so many different bureaucracies to navigate and financial systems. Like, there's so much structure that exists um, that you need these, like, higher level faculties to be able to move through them with any form of sophistication and um the i don't know the 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 navigation of time and i mean it's truly it's i mean gosh it's truly a form of wisdom i think not just merely be reactive to circumstance but to actually be able to work with the signs to make decisions that push you in a place where you want to be in the future at the time that you want to be there rather than being there just a fraction too late you know um and which is i mean obviously critical um for us as we move through this liminal time and like it's hard to achieve that in your own individual life but imagining a whole tribe you know, finding a way to orient themselves collectively in a navigational space, it's a, it's a task um, that's quite monumental and requires each of those individuals to, um, to do all of this integration work that you're speaking to. Um, yeah. Yeah, the pessimistic framing I offer is that we're fleas on a Titanic, but you know. <laughs> You know, that's that's so yeah. yeah, If you want to stack the deck in the way that's like, hey, is this going to be possible? Uh, could fleas turn the Titanic? I don't know, but on my more optimistic, jump at the same time, they all jump. You know, what else? And what else? And what else are we going to do? We can at least hope and hop. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. True. Yeah, (laughs) it's yeah, it's interesting. I mean. I think that this is where um, I'm curious about what it could potentially be to tap into the feminine. Um, I don't know if you've read any like tantric texts or anything like that. I'm not say like, that again. I didn't hear that. Tantra, tantric. Oh, oh yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, not. Uh, I'm I'm not well developed in the tantric world. I'll put it that way. But. Me neither. But it's it's the kind of thing that you know. Sometimes you you hear about something and then you kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I've been ever since I've been on Bard's list, I've been wondering about, hey, I should probably upgrade my tantric capacity. Hmm, what's up with that? <laughs> yeah, it's like, I'm definitely you know, on like, that. We're, we're in the same. Like, <laughs> well, should I know. get closer to this thing? What's well, going on? But um, I think uh, there is, there's like a framework of masculinity and femininity that I've kind of learned indirectly through other people talking to me about it. So this is very much a grapevine situation, but um, and even Fanny talked about this in her conversation with you of like the feminine being this kind of oracle that stands on the edge of the void and like speaks kind of this, Bard talked about this too, this metaphorical um, poetic language that is given to the masculine and, and you know, in Bard's mentality, this is like a split phallus to the chief yep. and to the priest to, to, connect them to to uh to the navigational field that the feminine is kind of in contact with and allow for them to articulate that actively into the world 
um, through this cooperation between the polarities of the masculine. Totally. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where I'm like, I'm curious about whether or not that's, that is the case. Like, is it the case that like, you know, the, you know, there's all these like, hmm, like tropes about women and like being hysterical and like being kind of mentally ill and like all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, is this, is this actually a, a way of framing this capacity uh, of, of the feminine as a pathology and not holding a structure in, in, in the culture and in, in relationship between the masculine and feminine polarities where the capacity for um, connection to this, this maybe more oracular kind of long time weird kind of singularity yep. thing going on where i mean especially if you're a woman who's been operating kind of like as a midwife or a priestess mm -hmm. of some kind where you have this contact with bodies of others and you're receiving them constantly like the way that that information is brought into you is not linear systematic it's through this kind of like impressions and uh receptivity uh that maps it into this like different kind of associative field and it feels like there's some potential for women to cultivate this capacity to to stand in this like associative wisdom and offer that to the masculine for their more kind of detail-oriented kind of uh structural navigation through um, kind of, yeah, objective depersonalized systems. Right? Uh, totally. I mean, my, the ease with which I can sink into that mythopoetic archetype is striking to me. I'll put it that way. And, and certainly I am the masculine priest. Okay. So, and my mm -hmm. task fundamentally is to analyze and then bring back you know, and really wanting to bring back to the feminine, let me solve the analytical problems and bring back to you. And you do, you know, you reward me and then you do see fit with what that it is, the gifts that I bring back and afford all, you know, I'll create a particular kind of architecture that you then live in, in a more chaotic and intuitive way. And I'm, my job is to afford that. And then to watch the receptivity and the cyclical flourishing in an intuition around a pristine architecture that I built that I'm rewarded for, that, that's a very, very um, pleasant opponent process mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I can really, and I want to play that role as an archetypal masculine. It's like, I can feel, I can feel very, and I, and it, and it position, it's a really interesting position because look at what I do here. It's like, I do this. Okay. Notice yeah, the yeah, position, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I, I and I'm, as opposed to this, you know, it's like, I want to cherish, hold and honor. Okay. And bring my gifts back so that you then utilize them and evaluate them in terms of your usefulness. And then, you know, uh, reward accordingly, you know, with sexual gifts and all of, or whatever admiration and all of that kind of thing. But it is to give them so that I cherish and honor and watch them be utilized to grow and replenish. You know, uh, and that feels very, very complementary, uh, and and so it's role based. I mean, it's archetypal. Look, I'm going to go out and solve these problems analytically, uh, you know, and but it's not in a way. Well, you because you couldn't. It's like no, you're doing something fundamentally I can't, you know. 
there's a regenerative connectedness to the cycle of being. Um, and and I'm, I'm going to take a linear particular angle and then bring back my linear thought to afford contribution to the cyclical process that you're engaged in. And that, yeah. that feels very sort of like archetypally yin-yang to me in, in a way that, that then engenders a whole that is the kind of processes that are in some ways, that's, you know, it's archetypal masculine and feminine energies that then placed in proper relation to achieve healthy opponent process balance. And, and I think we miss that horribly in our culture. I mean, I think that what, what that's pretty dialectically opposed to, oh, men and women are basically the same. We just bullshit what we are, you know, through some social constructed justificatory narrative. There's no real animal essence there at all. That's just power hierarchies. This is actually, no, that's completely errant, you know? The question is, how do we actually afford our justificatory roles to create healthy opponent processes? Uh, and why I'm archetypal, that doesn't mean that somebody else might be born in a different kind of body. There's all sorts of different reasons why we want to be unbelievably pluralistic. But we don't want to obliterate the uh, opportunity for healthy opponent processes between the archetypal primate masculine and feminine complementary systems that would then afford a particular type of network. Uh, for our natures in, in, a in a way that I think is regenerative. So that's yeah, what I totally. Yeah, well, because I think circuits, it's like circuits and energies. Um, we're all seeking, I mean, energies in order to motivate us. And the, the kind of energy sink that you find yourself in is uh, going to be part of how you navigate, how you're intuitively moving through the field. And without this... Um, polarity that can cycle this energy between the masculine and the feminine and between men and women truly like truly men and women who are standing in their bodies as themselves in this kind of um this this emergent and integrated way i think that well, of course we're going to be lost i don't i don't understand like pretty much everybody has moved over to the masculine side well that right? is, and yeah. so we have a highly asymmetrical culture um and i just i don't see how that will have a long-term, like, I just don't see the long-term. No, it's disastrous. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's why I wanted to talk to you and Femi, and there's an, uh, Fanny and Adriana, and, you know, there's lots of reasons to talk to women other about gender stuff, but to, to awaken the appreciation of the feminine archetype's power and the centrality that flows in sustainable culture in terms of cultivating the grammar and the fact that we've obliterated that through so much of what modernity did you know, and really pre-modernity. I mean, it's really, you got to go back oral indigenous, uh, not to be sort of stereotypical, but I fundamentally believe that's true, um, to look at many systems that have a proper relation. Uh, and so there's a lot of remembering we need to do uh, yeah. in that regard. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I like I've been, uh, as I've been connecting to this care capacity and being with my grandmother also kind of, checking into um my like yeah like biological urge to like have a child mm. you know there's um it seems like you know my folk theory about this is that women as they go through uh, you know puberty and adulthood they have these kind of moments where they want to deepen their capacity for care and it also comes it often comes as like an object in the mind like an image of like oh i want a baby Right. Or, you know, oh, I want, you know, I, I want something like that. Or like, I'm, you know, mm -hmm. really need, like, like, I need a mm -hmm. dog or I need a plant, you know, I need to like put this energy mm -hmm. into something. Sure. Um, 
that's not I mean I think I think actually many women and many men like get into these dynamics where women are infantilizing um their partners because they need some care object it creates this natural asymmetry of power um because the woman needs a dependent which that's like the particular kind of quality of that care energy which is why i think a dog is like a better channel uh than a than a, than a man right like because for that kind of great women don't actually want like men who are infants like that's just not right that's not the big turn on in the bedroom <laughs> no no it's not um but they also want like the channel for their you know sure. their care capacities and so these things are kind of getting conflated um and also women are delaying reproduction and like you know that's like not totally unusual but i think that um what is unusual is the kind of yeah the the kind of pejorative or uh like kind of pushing away or devaluing of their jobs in general like they're very low paid work um it's it's seen as being like kind of i don't know like disgusting or like you know to take care of like an elderly person it's like oh why would you do that you have to change the diapers like that's so that's so horrible like you and 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 some parts of this like you do have to have a like truly a capacity for care in order to do these jobs effectively um, and to play this role effectively and the 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 woman, I think, who embraces that and can actually do that type of work um, is engaging with this, like, in, you know, embodied experience with, uh, with the human cycle through interaction, through, through, this, through this total receptivity to the care of another person. Like, the thing that I realized when I was taking care of my grandmother that week when we talked, mm. um, was I had to I had to let go I had to dissolve my sense of operating in the world because I am you know I'm 26 I'm able-bodied I'm like able to I'm not aware of what it was what it's like to be a 92 year old woman like and and I can look at her from the outside and interact with her but until I'm receptive to her perspective I don't understand why she has objects placed in her house in certain places so she can grab onto them as she's moving from her chair to the kitchen. Like, I, you know, I'm not necessarily tapped into how she's navigating from her vantage point and the structure of her body to move through the world. Same thing with the child. Like, unless you're able to kind of dissolve your, your way of interfacing um, and really try and place yourself into their position in the world you see them as an object from the outside and you're not really aware of how they're intuitively engaging with the reality around them um and the the really like really synthetic and i think the sophisticated level of this being able to hold your uh your intelligence and your way of interfacing with the world and that other person's perspective and find a way to then assist them moving through their own environment, right? Um, and once you've done this with babies and you know pregnant women and with with older elderly people or with people who have various disabilities or mental illnesses, like suddenly you have 
a intuitive, receptive, like memory and experiential knowledge of engaging with all of these different qualities and characteristics of what it means to inhabit a human body. And that knowledge to me is like, I'm like, oh my God, like how incredible, like that is like a kind of and like in touchness with what it means to be human um that is so critical like so deeply critical you know all right i gotta pause you right there that's absolutely fucking brilliant okay um and 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 my so i gave up my clinical license uh this past year a lot of reasons to it okay uh some you know complicated whatever um but one of the identity reasons was that the cloistered intelligence of psychotherapy um, and the professionalization of psychotherapy is actually needs to be undone in a particular way. And, and it needs to be the fundamental wisdom of the process of psychotherapy needs to be released back into the world. Mm. Okay? Um, and, and if we go back and hit the clip of what you just described, okay, you essentially described the relational process wisdom of psychotherapy. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You, totally. The process by which you hold the psyche. In other words, you stay in your place and you understand what the world is from whatever third person and your particular transferential perspective in the world. But then you actually enter into an intersubjective field where you flip into the empathy of what it is like for your grandmother to grab hold of a particular place inside her bodied psyche and then be with that while you also maintain your perspective and maintain a potential third person view and to intersect between those types of things with grace and consistency and honor of the various perspectives in some sort of healthy opponent process, okay? And to be able to do that regularly across contexts, across diverse individuals that are across the lifespan and to live in a world where we would have individuals regularly afforded that capacity with each other well that's a different kind of grammatical world oh definitely absolutely okay. so yeah you, you just it, it, the elegance with which you articulated that was striking to me oh thank you <laughs> that's very kind um yeah i mean yeah that's just you know the impression that i got just being around my grandmother i was just like holy crap like whoa what oh my god what a loss that we're not living intergenerationally what a loss like just the fact of, of spending that time with her and and being conscientious like actually being in a receptive state where I'm trying to like and I'm I'm, I'm putting in a kind of open effort I'm not like trying to get her I'm like receiving her um, through an openness and through a letting go of my own identity, uh, how much knowledge I got. It, it, it was just like, and, and not like particular knowledge, like about how to do any particular thing, but like perspective, perspective on the world. And I think that's so much of our cultural conflict, I feel like is people who have various, you know, because we're highly specialized, right? We're kind of all stratified and we're all siloed and separated from each other people just yelling at each other being like my perspective is valid my perspective is valid like can't you see my perspective and 
it's, um, you know, I understand, I can see why people who work with people with disabilities or with elders or with children are like so frustrated um, that for, for most of the rest of the world, these are totally marginalized populations. They're, they're pushed out to the, to, to the very edges. They are hidden. They are put in these facilities that are far away. Um, and most people are not developing a capacity to intelligently and respectfully and um, to possible from living in relationship to people who are in different phases of, of, their, of their life cycle. Um, and it's, it's, I think, I, I wonder about the gendered aspect of this, because if, if, if there is, um, you know, gender polarity, and I, I think that there is, and if there is like this kind of um, sensory potential that I was talking about in terms of like the, the men and women, and like, I mean, we know this, like, you know, women have better sense of smell, or like see more colors or whatever, like there's actual kind of grounded physical things that make us different in terms of how we perceive reality um, on a sensory basis. So why wouldn't that continue up the hierarchy of your system? Why wouldn't that continue to be true as you, as you move through and include all of these different aspects of the whole experience of being human? And what does it mean for women to be giving up this kind of um, experiential knowledge and also for it to be kind of put down as, as a form of um, un, un, unpleasant labor? Um, that, no, that people don't really want to do. Um, so it's, yeah, I'm just like processing all of that and, mm -hmm. and thinking about it myself and like how I don't think that I can replace that experiential knowledge with reading a book. or Propositional anything. knowledge. Totally <laughs> different. Yeah, I just can't do that. And so, and then and this is a navigational thing too. And I think that's where perspective comes in. It's like, because my perspective has been reoriented, my sense of navigation in the world is shifting. Um, and like what I should be making contact with and how individual people, um, what they come in contact with, like is, is, truly, is truly critical, right? Like, uh, and, and being kind of androgynous, like you're kind of talking about your own androgyny, right? Like being like, okay, well, I'm going to, have a life of service. I'm going to help people. I'm going to heal people. I'm going to like give up my own kind of sense of identity um, and develop this quality of receptivity and care and expand my heart and be capable of taking on all of these different perspectives. But I also have this capacity for propositional knowing and I can articulate things and I can communicate and I can build systems, you know, and I can work between all of these different environments. Like all of that is a situational Kind of identification where you realize oh i'm in this landscape right and i'm in a particular position and if i can tap into forms of experiential knowledge that will give me an intuitive sense of how to be in the world alongside these other qualities that i just happen to have then over time those things will synthesize and will kind of open up new vistas that at this point at this place where i am now i can only see the you know budding kind of so uh, my sense, Raven, is that your developmental structure on your self-object change across a number of Keegan arcs is going to be brilliant over the next 26 years. <laughs> wow. Thank you. I know this, maybe this is like, this is like a interview slash like 
therapy life coach session. <laughs> it's, it's a conversation, right? Between two metamodern freaks. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, so we, I don't know. We should probably, like, we'll begin to wrap us up here. In terms okay, of, yeah, I was going to say, take, know, take the wheel well, here. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, it's a the, basically the whole frame of you talking with Greg is just, you know, it's a tour of somebody's version of reality. And you've offered a brilliant and beautiful tour, and I appreciate that. Um, is there anything that you sort of like, you know, kind of definitely wanted to touch on? Or if you look out in the horizon, you want to sort of perhaps leave people with? I mean, I think you've, uh, you know, it's kind of been a free form, which I really like. I think we've touched on a wide variety of different fascinating things for folks. Um, but I sure. want to give you an opportunity to see if there's anything as we begin to wrap up uh, that you want to share as the, the, the horizon approaches here. Yeah. Um, well, I do, I do think that um, the, the ground for working through these things is present in any relationship, particularly the relationships between the sexes. And there's, there is an, a deep necessity for those bonds to be repaired. And they're even in the most kind and like, you know, loving relationships, there are still these, um, I, I would say, kind of like cultural grammars that have been inherited that people are carrying around that um, it's only through experience with another person who isn't holding that as a form of truth that you can really begin to believe um, that there's other ways that are, there are other forms of engagement that are possible. Um, and I mean, I think that that's critical for me is um, like learning to trust my own navigation in the world um, and not... Like, it's, it's interesting because you have to walk this line where you don't want to be too uncompromising, but you also want to make sure that you're staying in your center because some people are going to want things from you. I mean, especially like young women. Oh my God, it's just people want your attention so much. It's just this like intense, um, yep. like barrage of like people and, you know, the world is so porous and like, you know, people just come up to you or like they'll send you messages or like whatever. It's just this like... Um, constant attention that you get thrown at you when you're when you're young and if you don't know how to wield it and you don't know how to um engage in a proper way i mean i think that there are all sorts of failure modes for young women there's like taking all of it as much as you can because you want that validation and you want that energy um there's there's kind of becoming like treating treating it like maybe in a more masculine way where you're like kind of engaging in these more disposable relationships um th there's like being kind of like turned off by the whole thing and and like sequestering oneself from it you know there's like all of these different ways that i think women are coping with this situation and most of them at least in my life i found that i haven't been particularly sophisticated um in the way that i have managed these relational dynamics um and particularly if you have, if you really do have things to offer, um, people are going to want your attention. <laughs> like, that's just the way that it is. Um, yep. So learning how to truly engage with the masculine with true respect, I think, I think something that's pretty common is for women to 
think that men don't really have feelings. Mm -hmm. um, and to, I mean, I essentially think it's a form of dehumanization um, and, a, and an objectification of that, that's happening both ways between mm -hmm. men and women. And the cycle of uh, kind of casual dating, I think, basically doesn't ever really allow for you to contend with the reality of the other person because you're only getting as far as like your projections will kind of uh, hold. And then the moment that they start to kind of crack, you're like, ah, you know, I'm going to go and see somebody else. Uh, you know, you uh, don't fit what I want. Or next. <laughs> next. Yeah, next. Uh, and like, and, and it's the, oh my God, the like opportunity cost of that in terms of like the development of the psyche, right? Because I think for me being in, I've never, I never casually dated or anything like that. And I haven't used dating apps or anything. And instead I've just like met people in the wild and engaged in relationship with them. And I think I've been, Oh, I've been so lucky that that's been my, um, my process of being in relationship because I've had to contend with the imperceptibility of other people and their, their eyes witnessing me and, and being like, and almost in a way, just like being like demanding of being seen. They're like, mm. you have to see me. You yep. have to see me. I'm mm. here. Like you care, you care about me. I know that you do. And almost in a way that's like, honestly, kind of threatening. It's like, if you don't see me, I will, I will leave you. Mm -hmm. And like, that is the kind of thing that can break denial. It can break um, justification systems that keep you in, out of touch with right. like, the, the true consciousness of another person. Um, and we all have blind spots. We all have things that um, we're, you know, tiptoeing around in our own psyches in order to sure. avoid these catalytic moments of coming to terms with our own, um, yeah, our own self-denial or pride or shame, whatever it is that we're kind of running away from. And it's these, these relationships where people are not willing to give up on you, but are also holding you to, the standards that they hold for themselves um, and are are also willing to step away if they're not if they're not being treated the way that they um, that they know in their heart is is, is dignified to them right. that is just like a perfect situation for massive transformation right. Um, right. of character and that that process is to be invited into your life um, like a relationship I don't think is measured by its pleasantness, but rather it's kind of structure mm -hmm. in terms of its capacity mm. to, to almost create, yeah, like in a Keegan sense, create the kind of problems that your existence, your being is like solving mm. in relationship to others. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's hard. Uh, it's, it can be very demanding, especially if you have a lot of work to do in the beginning. Um, but it's the kind of thing that because of sex and because of intimacy, connecting all the way to through the system that you're outlining, through down into like the very base elements of what it means to be a living thing, you are engaging with this kind of channel that reaches deep into the other person and they are reaching into that with you and that that space is like so charged it's so charged with 
um, all of the qualities of being human, particularly the, the, the animal ones and the negative animal ones. Huh? So we need to be engaging in these um, like sexual, social, romantic dynamics to get uh, this participatory knowledge um, and to continue to face it, continue to face it over and over again, that this is part of reality. And it's a crucial part of reality in a world that has exiled these things to the periphery and doesn't even have a grammar to understand them in, in a holistic manner. And so it's going to be rocky. Like we don't have the language for it. We don't have the grammar for it. You have to kind of accept that, um, that we've lost this cultural knowledge, cultural transference. And, you know, who's to say that there are, that, that the models of history are actually going to function in, in the epoch that we're moving into and that potentially it was necessary to rupture these pre-existing forms and roles and structures. Um, and yeah, we're going through this very chaotic transition and a lot of people are getting sucked into um, very exaggerated failure modes, like you said, right? We just have such a broad capacity for failure because of our flexibility as creatures. Um, so it's a hazardous environment. It's, you're going to fail. You, you don't know what you're navigating or what you're doing. Um, and being in relationship, true, genuine, like deep relationship with other people, I think is, is the way to get that embodied experience that can begin to make conscious these these things that are 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 kind of latent but not explicit and not being interacted with um, in a kind of in an integrated way. So yeah, that's like that's my take on like sex, I think, in relationships. And it's a difficult, I mean, gosh, I I know I I know just her experience like how these things just come into the rivalrous dynamics. <laughs> I just know. They certainly can do that quickly. They certainly can do that <laughs> yeah. quickly. Yeah. So, no, I th yeah. That's, that's, Great. that's what I would say about that. And like, and it is all being towards death ultimately. And <laughs> like, if you can be in relationship to death directly, if you can go and sit with your grandparents, if you can go and, um, yeah, sit with a person who's who's passing on, have reverence for the cycles of life and awareness of where you're going to kind of broaden that perception of reality. I think that that can only deepen your relationship to your present moment um, if, if you're being if you're being courageous about what that brings up in you. And so once again, this just brings in the animal of the courage and the loyalty to oneself and one's experience and others so beautiful beautiful i think those are lovely reflections on the grammar of our psyche and sex and gender and death that we need to emerge in relationship to you know as we try to find our way uh through this time between worlds so i think those are exactly the kinds of themes uh, that i hope folks can reflect on and maybe find their way toward Indeed, indeed. All right. Well, thanks yeah. so much for coming on. Thank you. And Such a uh, joy. so fun. Uh, I knew uh, this was going to be fun. So, uh, <laughs> good. Well, I'm glad it was. And it was delivered. certainly <laughs> enjoyable. And uh, we riffed off lots of different things. Uh, so, cool. I really appreciate your 
time and I look forward to posting this and sharing it with yeah. folks. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, it was a joy. Good. Go ahead. All right. Take